0: What's going on, Full Contact CEO listeners and amazing humanoids out there? Alex Magleby here, co-founder and CEO of the high Fly New England Jacks. I just wanted to jump on before our final episode of the Captain America miniseries to say thank you to everyone who has subscribed and listened to the show. Much appreciated. There are plenty more episodes of Full Contact CEO to come. But we want to hear from you. Who do you think would be a great guest on the pod? Shoot us a message on Instagram or Twitter or email or whatever smoke signals you want to use to tell us who your ideal guest would be. And you never know, they may be coming to a pair of headphones near you soon. Now, on to episode five with the man who bleeds red, white, blue. And of course, Big Green, none other than USA 7's legend, Captain Madison Hughes. Let's ride. Former U.S. National Rugby Team captain. Team captain. Head coach and general manager. General manager. Now the co-founder and CEO of the New England Free Jacks.
1: Now, now, Full Contact CEO with Alex Magleby.
0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining Full Contact CEO today. I'm your host, Alex Magleby. I'm also lucky enough to be co-founder and CEO of the high-flying free spirit in New England free Jacks. Joining me today is Madison Hughes, National Team 7's captain for many moons, two-time U.S. Olympian, Dartmouth grad, Go Big Green, Lancaster Mass native, and, of course, the one-time Jon Snow look-alike, Maddie. <laughs> Welcome to the one and only Full Contact CEO. How are you? Good, Max. Thank you for having me on. It's a dream come true. It's great. I know, I know. It, right? This is like when you were laying out the framework of your life, you know, kick the big kick, graduate with an Ivy League degree, be a world-class historian, at least amongst your peers on the national team, be an Olympian, and be on Full Contact CEO, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. I visited Hampton New Hampshire, I was like, that's a guy who's going to have a great podcast one day, and I want to be on it. brilliant. Okay, word game to get warmed up. I'm just going to say a word. Say the first thing that comes to mind. Lose. Hate. Oh, so good. I just had a big green breakfast this morning with a bunch of the DRC leaders, and it was fantastic and so fun. Come on. Dark cowboy. Should I? What? I, have better? A, a lot of mags meetings. Okay, great. See. See. Now we're on. Now we're on Wellington. Growing up. Big green. Home away from home. USA. Uh, proud. Olympics. Ultimate goal. Consistency. Hard to achieve. John Snow. Uh, great look for a little bit. <laughs> the future. Uh, uncertain. Mm, I like that for all of us. What is your future? I'm really excited to hear your thoughts. Oh, i are trying wait. to figure it out. <laughs> Before we get there, how did we get here? Now you grew up in the UK. Um, uh, mother's from New England, Massachusetts, uh, born, raised, what happened? Yeah. So my dad's English, he's from, uh, suburbs of London. My mom's
1: from Massachusetts, as you mentioned, and grew up in England my whole life, but always felt a big pull to, uh, Massachusetts in the greater New England area, I think. My mom's one of six and has we have a lot of aunts, uncles, cousins who we'd visit for like between a month and two months every summer. And then sometimes in the winter as well. Um, and it was always like best time of my life coming and visiting my family, being immersed in, in immersed in that. And I think my family, my mom, that whole side really entrenched in me like, I don't know, a feeling of Americanness. Um Despite the fact that I was growing up in England, like I had my English family as well. Um, But that was always a a really strong part of me and it was always like something I defined myself as. Um, And then, yeah, as I got older, it was became, yeah, more of, oh, I I think I want to go live and explore kind of that side of myself one day Um, and then college became enough time
0: to do it so when you were a child and the family would say let's watch football your mom would be like okay we're turning on the patriots and your dad would be like no we're watching chelsea pretty much yeah no i mean my dad my dad was taking me to chelsea games i think the story was that i went to my first
1: game when i was like four months old and he was sitting i was sitting on his lap and uh, he was very upset because every time i think chelsea would score i'd like get i'd like cry and the other team would score and i wouldn't do anything or something like that probably had more to do the fact that he was in a section of very rowdy people who every time Chelsea scored would go crazy and yeah let's see what's called dead silence um but now he he always brought me up with that so that was always a huge thing but no I mean I remember like we would for the early Patriots Super Bowls when we were a bit younger um we would like tape delay them and then we'd watch them after school and it would take us like three days so at the time you could live your life without finding out sports scores I don't know if that would be achievable now um but the the first one, I think we were watching, and my mom was my mom must have walked in like pretty early on in the game because she didn't seem to know we were watching, and um, she was like, "Oh, you're watching the Patriots, Johnny and David were at the uh, parade, who are my cousins," and we were like, "What?" <laughs> no. And this is one of the Vinatieri last second field goals, most exciting yes. endings, and there we were. But we still watched them. So that was we watched the the sports teams on on tape delay, and that was always very fun. Um, but no, it was the, the sports teams. I think were another way to connect with that side of my family and connect with my American identity and the New England region.
0: The language of sports, universal, which is which is absolutely fantastic. How, what did you play growing up? Obviously, there was rugby at some stage, but
1: yes, you were a footballer. I everything. Um, so, I mean, I always loved all sports. I think I, yeah, f- soccer, football was my my first love, I'd say. And I was playing that, dribbling a ball around from before I could probably walk properly. Um, and and that was always a huge thing for me, but I started playing rugby when I was seven. I played cricket. I played tennis squash, ran some track, um, played field hockey for a little bit. I I kind of did every sport I could and pretty much loved them all. And I think I've always loved competition and teams and, and that was a big thing for me that I discovered later on is that team sports were something I enjoyed and found a lot more fulfilling than individual sports. But at the same time, I was down to try everything, give everything a go, and, and and enjoy it. Basketball? I did try basketball, so we had a basketball hoop in my yard, and I, I actually, I would say, among my English peers, I was a decent basketball player. I quickly came to the U.S. and think, you know what, basketball's probably not my game. Um, but no, I, I could
0: dribble the ball around, I, I was shooting, but no, I wasn't competing at the rim with anyone. I can see you being a... Pretty stellar point guard rounders and rackets. I thought you were going to say for sure. I uh, yes, I, I played it. rackets. That's probably the most obscure sport I played. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> that's
1: that's I don't you know what you played. Yeah, there, there are there are various forms of rackets. I assume, but the one I played is it's like a, a squash sort of core. It's three times as big, and you play with like a golf ball. Yeah, uh, it's hard. Yeah, and it's real. It's really hard and pretty dangerous, but it was it was fun. Like it was when I went to Wellington, I, I did the uh, sports scholarship exam and rackets was there. We're just going to throw everyone in here and see who can do it It as like a general athleticism test, I think it was, which must have suited people who'd played racket sports a lot more than anyone who hadn't, but um, yeah, no, it was fun. So I did rackets for a year or two, and that was, again, just trying out different sports, enjoying them, and kind of, I I think it, doing that, and I'm a multi-sport proponent, um, I, I think was a really cool way of kind of learning different skills in different environments, and then you can transition those to, to whatever game you end up doing. And I think I really benefited from that when I didn't just do the same sport the whole time and, and develop a really narrow set of skills, but it was kind of a more creative view to your sport. And then also just a different, broad set of skills and a, a, and a broad way of doing things.
0: Yeah. So key theme here, athlete development, multi, multi skills growing up. When did you start specializing in rugby?
1: So I'd say it was pretty late. It was, I was 16 or 17. Um, even when I was 16, I think I still played three sports a year. When I was 17, it became two. And then my last year, my senior year was when I really just played rugby. Uh, and that was mostly because at that stage, my senior year of high school, I, we, we always played rugby in the fall at Wellington. And then, we, and then in your last two years, you could do rugby sevens in the winter. So I started doing that. And then in the spring, I uh, had made the USA U20 team. And so I was going to be gone in Tbilisi, Georgia for, for a period of time. And so I was like, I, I think the cricket coach was like, are you coming out this year. And I was like, you know what, can't make it happen. I'm, I'm going to be gone for a month. So I'm just going to specialize in rugby. So for me, it was pretty late and, and I always enjoyed that. I mean, I think when I was younger, like I, there are periods of time where I would have said soccer, football was, uh, even bigger for me than rugby. And, and it didn't really become, um, rugby, the sole focus until a bit later.
0: Who made the wise decision to put sevens? rugby in an English winter. That's brilliant. <laughs>
1: it is. I mean, so yeah, it, it, the, the world series is a little different sevens environment than the one I grew up playing. It, yeah. it is, it is a bit extraordinary. Sure. I mean, the most, one of the most famous tours, the Rosenbach sevens, the school sevens, and pretty much every single year without fail, you'd be playing in a complete mud bath. And it was still an amazing tour we yeah. to playing, but it was so cold. There was one sevens tour we played. Can't remember exactly where. Down in the southwest of England, and uh, it was so muddy. And they, I think all the teams had to share like one little brick out building as their changing room between games. And we got so muddy, and it was freezing cold in this first game. And I remember one of my coaches was like, "Oh, you need to warm up your feet. You should run them under the hot tap." And of course, we only had one pair of kit for the whole day. So then I was running around in my wet socks for the rest of the day. And I actually didn't play in the final of the tournament because I was like getting like i was like shaking in the thing and i like, couldn't move so i sat on the bus while my, <laughs> while my team won that tournament so that that's not my most practice moment but i think a testament to what you have to get to play sevens in england
0: yeah don't worry the championship team just did pick and goes and sevens <laughs> weren't it <laughs> that's <laughs> the environment that was so okay but you were on two pathways there for a little bit because you were potentially you had the you had the ability um and um the family to play either chase the english pathway or the american pathway how did you refine that decision
1: yeah so um i when we were uh i was an under 15 so it was my uh, we have five years of school in england so it's harder to translate but um i played in the the daily mail sevens and we ended up winning that tournament um and i played quite well in the final and and got some looks off of that so then the next year uh, was the England under 16 trials um, and I played for Berkshire which was the county my school was in and then uh, made it through to the divisionals two which was kind of like the last trial for England the 16s um, the way I tell the story I was on the wing I think I touched the ball once in the trial game and and didn't get selected um, and I was pretty disappointed by that I think it, as a and schools rugby isn't like the natural trial system but I rarely came across someone um who I didn't think was, I was better than Um, And I think I played for a very good school, so that probably helped. Um, but so then after the trial, I uh, didn't get picked for the for the England stuff. And I ended up playing for Southwest against the USA, USA under 17 team. Um, played decently well in the match. And then after the game, uh, I went and talked to the head coach, who was Sean O'Leary um, okay. and said, hey, like I'm US qualified. Uh, like what, 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 what does that look like sort of thing? Um, and then I also had my high school coach who had, who he went to Oxford and he played there with Matt Sherman and he emailed Matt Sherman and said, Hey, got a guy who, um, is good rugby player and is us qualified. Would you guys be interested? Um, and I think, uh, yeah, a couple months later, I was in, um, Glendale, Colorado for a, uh, no, I was in Santa Barbara, California. That's a very nice place to be, uh, for, a, for a little
0: USA, um, high school American camp. And Kind of went from that. That's fantastic. I mean, I'm sure Sean and and Sherm were just like, oh, oh, yes, of course, yeah, well, <laughs> yes, of course. You might have to try out, but not really. Okay, so how did you end up at the world's greatest undergraduate university? No bias. Darn yeah, time. I mean, I I would
1: 100% agree with that categorization. I think, yeah, nothing better than that. Um, so I was, yeah, I think as I mentioned, I always wanted to kind of explore the American side of myself. I think I also. In England, you go and you study one subject for your entire degree. Um, and I've always been a bit of a academic fly. Like I like to change around and do, and do different things. And I found the idea of doing one subject for my entire degree, um, not very appealing. So between those two elements, I think that helped me decide that, you know, what I do want to go to college in the US um, and with my family in the Massachusetts area, New England really jumped out at me. So I was looking for a college in the US. My mom said, if you're going to go to the US, it's going to cost a lot of money. You got to go to a good academic school. So I was like, okay. And then I was looking for a good rugby school.
0: No pressure, no pressure. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So that narrowed down my options. So I was looking for a good rugby school that had good academics in the northeast of the US. And I visited a few places. A lot of my family went to Boston College. That was kind of our family school. So I visited Boston College. I went to Brown, uh, checked out a few other places, Um, but once I visited Dartmouth, Bill Lehman was showing me around and I saw the clubhouse, saw the, um, saw the burphy field. And I was like, you know, what, this is where I want to get them. Uh, and I want to be, and I want to work
0: with a ginger coach.
1: And I want to work with a ginger coach. That was obviously the, the, the hidden element and I, I didn't know that was the secret at the time, but there it was. And, and obviously Dalvis pedigree speaks for itself. And, but I, I think once I visited and saw the school, saw what the rugby was about there and, and talked to some of the people involved, it was, It very quickly became, This is where I want to go, and was lucky enough to get in.
0: Great Uh, pathway, US pathway. Then you were playing high school Americans, and that quickly then transitioned into under twenties for a couple of years. What was that experience like?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I did one year of high school Americans, and and that was cool. I mean, I I think we um, it was it was different seeing what was happening with the US rugby system. I think it was a very different. Uh, it was in a very different place than even my high school program um, in the U.S. We'd come together for these high school American camps, and like every single person, would be like, "Oh yeah, no, I played fly half for my team back home," and like very athletic, lots of but a lot of raw potential. Whereas in England, I mean, I played wing, and I think that probably would never have happened if I'd grown up in the U.S. And I, I think that was because in England, like, this is your role; you're going to do exactly this. Whereas even with the high school Americans, it it quickly became you can kind of. Feel yourself out and and, t- and do a little bit of whatever you want. And then it became the U-20s. And I and I really enjoyed that experience. The first year we didn't do so well. We went to the World Trophy in Tbilisi, Georgia, which was one of the longest three or four weeks of my life. It was a very long time to be in Tbilisi, pretty much in isolation. I think there was like a political uprising while we were there. So we spent one day locked down in our hotel because the gods wouldn't let us leave with their Kalashnikovs. Um but th- so that was cool. And, and then I think we learned a lot of lessons. We had Scott Lawrence was our coach for the U-20s, and I, I think he had a, a famous f- a plane flight where he wrote down all the lessons he'd take from that year. And then the next year, we came back and played with a bunch of great players. I think Will McGee, Mike Teo, um, two big guys who were on that second U-20 team. Um, and we yeah, had a great experience. We spent like three or four weeks in in Denver together. I uh, then went to Utah, um, and we won the Junior World Trophy, which I think... Seemed like a really big progression and step forward at the time. I don't know if it was just because as a team, we'd gone from seventh to first in one year. Um, but it seemed like a really cool system. And then, I mean, at the time, I was really frustrated that the next year, the team going to get to go to the Junior World Cup and play against yeah. the those teams. But in hindsight, I might have dodged a bullet there.
0: <laughs> what, can we learn? what can the Free Jacks learn in, in rugby in New England about that pathway and how it may apply to future would-be Olympians? Yeah, I mean, I I think I really learned a lot from the opportunity to play against
1: high level competition from different regions. And and I think that that was something that really felt like a huge learning experience to me, uh, obviously playing against different styles and different styles yeah. in different countries and being exposed to different cultures. I felt like that was something that really helped me grow as a rugby player. Um, and I've been lucky enough, like at schools, we, we went to South Africa one time, we went to Ireland a few times. So, I'd been lucky enough to have done that earlier but I think for the team and and for us it really opened a lot of eyes um and and I think it's it helps to do that at a younger age so I I, I think that I really benefited from doing that earlier in my career so that when I came back I was like this is amazing like look at what rugby can let me do and and, and I really want to progress so that I can keep having these sort of experiences and 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 that really benefited me I mean for the Free Jacks I think getting that robust pathway is really important um, and having people progressed through the system. I, I think as you, like I was like lucky enough to spend two years in the U20s and I think we found the the guys who were able to do that and obviously probably had to meet a certain threshold to have been in the U20s a year young, but the guys that we had formed that core of the second team uh, and we'd learned so many lessons the year before we'd grown up together so much from the year before that by the time we got to that second tournament, I think it helped us push to a higher level. So. I think it's, yeah, I don't know what lessons there are in there, but it's getting a group of guys who can progress through the system together, I think really benefits the whole group.
0: There's a lot to be said about consistency, right? Even though there's others who may be equally as good, just the fact that there's a group together consistently and then being challenged in, in different environments against different styles. I think it's 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 really pertinent. How did you then kind of Progress and be nurtured into and move into what became a very successful has been uh, to date a very successful sevens career. How did you make that transition? Uh,
1: yeah, so I mean, my freshman year, I was at Dartmouth, and I got the news that my head coach was leaving to become the head coach of the U.S. national sevens team, and that was like Oh, this I thought I was going to be here for four years with with Max, Um, and and now see he's you sp- later. See, see you later. But I, I had actually I'd heard rumors before that that. Uh, not that the post was coming free, but that you were in line for higher positions. Um, and so then we had success at the CLC my freshman year. Uh, and I think after that, went off to the U-20s and and it was, yeah, pretty quickly after that, was invited out. And I, I was lucky enough with the Dartmouth quarter system that I was already kind of planning to take the winter quarter off. And you invited me out to train with the sevens team that winter. And that became the start of my uh, snow-free winters in San Diego, which have lasted quite a long time now, um, but
0: as it's uh, negative ten degrees outside today in Hanover,
1: hey, I mean, I, I've had I, I signed up for four years of really cold winters. I didn't really feel like I got to experience them, so there's still that a yeah. little itch in me to to get come some back winters under my belt. I I will at some point. I will at some point. Um, but uh, yeah, so then was lucky enough to be invited out. Uh, did reasonably well, and then I spent the next winter in San Diego as well. And then Matt Hawkins was the coach by that point, and he picked me to make my debut in Wellington. And after I did that, so that was February of my junior year. And then after that point, it was a lot of flying back and forth from San Diego to to Boston to New Hampshire. Um, and and I spent, I'd say, yeah, the last one and a half years of my, my college degree kind of going back and forth and spending any off periods from rugby uh, at Dartmouth and then Juggling back and forth for a couple terms, which my professors weren't weren't in love with, um, and then a couple off terms where I was able to be full time in San Diego with seventeen.
0: How did you manage that? Obviously, you're, you're a great student, and um, but you know, in doing a difficult degree, how did how did you manage that in terms of making sure you got your academics done and you chased elite sport. The the
1: funny thing is that my grades really picked up the last time I was I was in Hanover. So I don't know if that was all me or if my professors were finally glad to be glad to be rid of me full time. But no, I think it it took a lot of um, time management, which is a bit of a cliche. But it also took me prioritizing what was important to me and what I wanted to achieve. I think early on in my degree, like obviously, and this is I don't look on back look back on this and with regret really like. The social side was really important to me and I wanted to enjoy myself. But as I got later in my career, it became, okay, I want to push for the 2016 Olympic team. I want to get my degree from Dartmouth. And if I want to achieve those two things really at the same time, then I needed to make sure that I was fully focused on chasing those goals as much as I hadn't. I was still still able to have fun. I've still got a great group of friends, so I don't feel like I lost out too much, but it became prioritizing what was important to me and what I needed to achieve that. Um, and so it became, yeah, if I'm in Australia and I've got to write an essay, that's what I've got to do. And I I would go on that team outing to to the beach or whatever it is. And if I was in Hanover and I knew that tomorrow I was going to have to leave to go to San Diego and I was going to miss three days, it was really important for me in the, in the the lecture that I wasn't going to miss or the the discussion section that I wasn't going to miss that I had to be really active. And so really prepare for that. And then for the discussion section, I was going to miss. I had to reach out to my professors weeks in advance. Say, hey, I'm going to miss this. Or, like, can I miss this class? And I had one memorable one, which was actually my junior spring. So the spring, I just come back to Dartmouth, and I said to Matt, I wasn't coming back for the spring. Like I had to go back and pursue my degree. And I remember walking off the field in Hong Kong, and like knowing I was going back to school. Me, like, okay, like this could be the last time. Like I'm going to make sure I take all this in. And mm-hmm. and. Then I came back in the spring and the team didn't do so well in Glasgow. And so I got the call. Oh, I think it was on the Monday of the, the tournament week from Matt being like, Hey, could you come to London this weekend? And I was like, "Maybe." And so I sent an email for professors and I got, well, I got one response back from one, which was literally, really long response, but how it was a bad idea for me to do it. And then she was, the end she was just like, but dot, 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 go play rugby. And I was like, okay. it's all yeah.
0: like, hey. <laughs> Go play for the national team. <laughs> yeah. So you were the youngest. Captain, you're the youngest player on the team. When Coach Friday named you captain, what did that mean to you? Is what what is the role of the captain? What did you think it was? How has that changed in your experiences over time? Yeah, so I
1: think it was a shock to me at first. I, I so actually Zach Test, who is one of the really the star of the team at the time, had said to me like a week or two before, uh, like, "Oh, you're on your way to being captain here," and I was like, "What? Like, no way! Like, I'm as I said, I think I was 21 at the time." Um, there were guys who were 10 plus years older than me who played in 50 plus tournaments. Um, and I mean, I played in four at that point and it had been over the like six, seven months. So like, it was something that was not really on my radar at all. I was still trying to make the team. I think I, I said to my girlfriend when, um, Matt left that like, oh, like, I don't know if this is a good thing for me, like the new coach might come in and then I never get another shot. Um, and so it turned out to be a great thing for me. Um, but I think. A big part of that was people like Zach, Nick Edwards, who'd been the leaders kind of the year or so before were absolutely fantastic in their support of me. And from day one, it was like, Hey, we're here for you. We want the team to succeed, whatever we can do, let us know. Um, and so that was, that took so much pressure off me because I wasn't worried. Like, are these older guys hating me, are they thinking that like this young kid doesn't deserve to do it and, and all that. So I think that really helped. Um, I think also like my. I'd been captain of a couple teams before that. um, And my natural style is kind of just to, at the time, mostly I'd say, was to just work really hard, be like everything I want everyone else to be and kind of hope everyone else falls into line. Um, And and that worked in some ways, didn't work in some ways. And I think I discovered that. I think in my early years, I had a little bit of a tendency to be more of like a, I don't know, a ballot taker, I'd say, than a like... (laughs) Like I, I like Mike would say like what do you think of this and I'd be like I'll tell you in a second and like and ask a few people and and come back to him and be like okay this is what people have said um, which obviously isn't all it should be but I think I I grew in the role and I became a lot more comfortable both within my, my with my place in the team and with my voice um, and became a lot more vocal over the years and I think there are probably upsides and downsides to that I think as I grew into the role it, it's hard not to let it become. Um, procedural in some ways where I've been doing this for five or six years at this point. So I'm very comfortable in what I'm doing and and it's hard to bring that kind of, I'd say, fresh perspective to what's happening every day where I think this particularly happened because we had such a strong core that stayed together the whole time that the environment didn't really feel like it changed very much even with coaches leaving, coaches coming, high-performance managers leaving, high-performance managers coming, Uh, um, different things like that. I, I think my place within the team after a certain amount of time, I became so comfortable in that role that I, and every now and then, I'd be like, "Okay, you need to think about this differently. You need to make sure that you're looking at things from different perspectives." Because I think unless you're constantly assessing the environment and constantly assessing everything you're doing, um, you're probably going to miss a trick and and not and not be able to optimize what you're
0: doing. So that it, and it's a, that was a decade long team, right? Of 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 the core being together and being built. In that process, some of the teams, you know, were quite successful from a performance perspective. Some of them, uh, there were a lot of opportunities for growth. Uh, Some, you know, perhaps you wouldn't want to go back through that, that, that same experience. Uh, What do you, like, what were the areas that would, that would be the differential where, you know, teams were winning cups and teams were at the elite performance uh, versus some of the teams that you were on that weren't quite um, at that same execution level? Uh, what, what are some of the differences looking back?
1: Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think it varies from team to team. Like you have some teams that contain elements that you wouldn't have thought would be essential and that makes them successful. And some teams have those elements and still aren't able to do it. So when I look back on the 2018, 2019 team, which I think was obviously our most successful team during my tenure. The biggest difference for me was that the pretty much the whole of that, like kind of leading group we had really stepped up and were leading in all of their own different ways. So whether that was Pinky, Marty, Danny doing his stuff. And and I think in other years, we had a couple of guys who were doing that. And then a bunch of others who were kind of content to, to follow and concentrate on their own things. Whereas in that 2018 year, and I think we got so united around our goal of we have to finish top four so that we can achieve Olympic qualification, that every single person was so focused on that that they were really pushing forward and and they were willing to have those difficult conversations and they were willing to be vulnerable and they were willing to do whatever it took. And like, I mean, single out Marty here. I I think Marty in his first year on the team was a little inconsistent. Um, He had the potential to be the best player in the world, but he also had games where he would make mistakes that cost us. Um, And I think in that 2018 year was he made such a big jump in Rather than being frustrated that he was looking for an offload and the runner hadn't come, he was stepping back and having the conversation about like, this is what I saw in the defense. And if you run this line, then we're going to break them. And I think his willingness to do that and his willingness to, I guess, be vulnerable and say, this is why I'm frustrated. This is why things aren't working out. Um, And that's just to single him out. I think a lot of people progress in, in that way. And I mean, Pinky was absolutely enormous that year. Falao doing his thing all the time, and I think even Falao, it was a that year was a, a turning point in him being willing to st- speak up and have conversations with guys that he probably wasn't that comfortable with. I think my first few years on the team, he was really comfortable with certain people and, and would talk to them, but other than that, he it, it was it was hard for him to to yeah be vulnerable, and I, and I think a lot of us were able to do that in 2018, and then after that. It was, it was interesting. I, I think it will, it will always be a bit of a question mark of what would have happened. Um, after that without obviously the pandemic and, and yep. other factors, I think we weren't doing so hot the year before, um, before the pandemic hit any, any, in, in any case. Um, but I, I, so I think that was us, that was us trying to take a lot of lessons from 2016, where I think in 2016, by the time we got to the Olympics, a lot of people felt like we'd already run our race. Um, yeah. And so in 2020, we were trying to focus on, okay, we're trying to peak for the Olympics. Obviously we want to do well in the season beforehand, but the Olympics is what it's all about. Um, And so did we get the balance right? We'll never know because things got curtailed and then the pandemic year was interesting. I I think that was a really tough one because obviously everyone was going through so much stuff and we were able to be full-time rugby players, so we don't have much to complain about, but um a lot of stresses and and the environment just became quite difficult um and it I, it very much felt to me at least like we had a lot of people who were hanging on for for one last ride um and that told in the environment and we never quite achieved that same um that same singularity of focus and drive which i think is so essential to everything and even back in the early years i think we really had that with we are trying to break into the the top tier of where teams don't want to play us and teams aren't thinking, oh, it's the USA. Like, we don't have to worry about them. And, and I think we rallied around that. And then in 2018, we rallied again around, like, breaking into that top two or three teams. Um, and then and in the pandemic, year, we weren't quite able to hit that. And obviously, not playing any competition doesn't help. I think we're athletes. We want to play games. Um, and just going into training and training and training and training for months and on end with different things happening. Yeah, it didn't work out too well for us.
0: I assume that, you know, that 2018-19 team that was coming after the World Cup sevens in San Francisco, home ground, that didn't quite work out for expectations, probably where you guys were. So you mm-hmm. had that, um, just again looking outside in, you had that to coalesce around and build from. Um, do you think uh, that the change 18-19 to, to the last couple of years was a burden of expectation based on your previous performances that we see happen in a lot of situations where teams hit peak um yeah potentially i mean i think after that
1: where we woke up sevens which is an incredible experience but like like some others um pretty devastating to to lose on the last play like that we had some meeting we had a meeting in the room and it was like okay like this we didn't do how we wanted to we've got to go out and next season this like we can do any We we know we can be anyone like we've we've proved that we've shown that on game, a tournament, but we've never shown that over a season. And I think the seeds of that were really sown in that lot in, it was the the hotel room after the rugby world cup sevens for the, yeah, I mean, it is, it's always hard to follow up success. And I I think that's true in rugby. It's true in business. It's true. It's true in life where doing something to a really high level once is one thing, but being able to consistently do it year after year is another. Um, I think it could definitely be a, been a factor. I, I, I'm not sure. I, I think. We always had that problem and going back to my whole time on the team. And I know this reflects on me really, but, um, where we, we could peak for one game, we could peak for a tournament, but doing it over the course of a season was, was always our struggle. Um, we put it all together in that 2018, 19 season and hadn't been able, weren't, weren't able to do it after that. But, uh, I mean, it was, yeah, I guess the nature of what we were trying to do was as uh, the Olympics was the ultimate goal for us and. We weren't trying to really, we, we had to for 2018, 19, but the ultimate goal was to peak for that one tournament, that one weekend. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, the, the Olympics, we can get on to the Olympics, but um, mm-hmm. that was, that was I, I don't know if that was a burden of success because we had all the, we had everything built up and then we just
0: let it. Really, go. really excited to jump into that. In sevens in particular that, you know, the old saying is really so true about the game. You're not as good as your last result you're not as bad as your last result right sevens in particular you get all your restarts you blow away team by 40 the next game you don't get a couple of those restarts the game and the score is entirely different even though you did everything the exact same right yeah that's so true like it's such a percentage game and
1: one or two things happening differently change it from a 10 point win to a 10 point loss uh, and not in your control um i mean i remember sitting that i usually just sit in the back on or receiving kickoffs and run next to the kicker on the kicking. And I'm just running like, please catch it, please catch it, please catch it. And like that one little action, which could have so many different factors, changes
0: the whole game, the whole tournament, your whole life. So. And i and then the other piece is, is, is what got you here won't get you there. Right. And I think that looking at those, those teams, even look at the 2019 world cup with England, they beat the all blacks in the semifinals. you know, what happened in that week, how mm-hmm. as a coach, do you manage that? how difficult that is because you don't know, you know, it's, um, do you even go harder on what you were doing? Do you take the breaks off? Uh, so I'd imagine with, with coach Friday, how difficult that was kind of taking all those lessons and then figuring out what's going to happen plan for 20 and you guys are all planning mm-hmm. to peak again in 20 and then, okay, well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and I, I can't imagine how emotionally challenging that was, let alone the physical, um, periodization of that, how, exceedingly challenging it was. You're extraordinarily fortunate and well-deserved. You not only are an Olympian, you're a two-time Olympian. Uh, What are the differences between those two experiences, Rio in 16 and then Tokyo 2020 in 21? So, I mean, the most obvious one is obviously the
1: pandemic factor, which like in Rio, we were able to interact with everyone for all the benefits and probably drawbacks that had. The opening ceremony was this incredibly vibrant, loud, energy-filled affair. Um, and I think I'll always be very grateful no matter what happens from here on out that I had that Rio experience before I had the Tokyo experience. I mean, I think for the guys who just went to Tokyo, they had an amazing time. They, I don't know if I should be saying this because now they'll know, but I'm sure they know already, yeah. but they're, they're like, they don't really know what they they were missing out on because like you did the opening ceremony and you were walking with all the team USA athletes, it was amazing. NBA players, these gymnasts, like, well, gymnasts probably aren't that. But, all, all these incredible athletes who you've looked up to and admired. And then you walk into the stadium together. And in Rio, you walk into the stadium and the energy goes through the roof. Like it, the whole crowd's going nuts. Everything's going crazy. In Tokyo, we walked into the stadium and it was like, oh, there's no one here. It was, it felt a bit dead. So I think that was a little bit of a microcosm in some ways of the whole experience where it was all so amazing, but it also felt like you were missing out on so much. And having done Rio, I, knew exactly what that was. Um, so, I think that was obviously the most, the biggest thing. I mean, we in we went to Tokyo, uh, we, we flew into Osaka. We spent a week in uh, uh, Mitsushima, didn't get that wrong, but uh, a different city somewhere else in Japan. And we were pretty much isolated to our hotel and the training field and the gym for the whole week. I think we went to Tokyo. We were there for two days, competed for three days and left the next day. So it okay. very much became defined by how the games went. Um, Opening ceremony was still one thing we did get to go, but in Rio, obviously still defined by how the games went, but like I actually stayed through the closing ceremony, I went to 16 other events. I I saw everything I could and walked around Rio, which was a little dangerous, but felt good at the time Um, and and was able to do so many incredible things that I think that Rio experience, when I look back, obviously big disappointment about how the games went, but also so much enjoyment and, and so much Good feelings about that. Whereas when I look back on Tokyo, it's really just defined by what, eight minutes against against. It. jeez how much
0: elite sport has to do with not only the experience of the athlete, but of the participants and mm-hmm. looking at Rio and, and being in the stands while you guys were walking this massive unified American team uh, was, was beautiful and magical and amazing. You know, remembering back to Rio. Um, the people were so friendly, but it was so crazy, like trying to get the logistics right and everything else. I'd be in the follow car with a few of the backup athletes, like horse would run out of a favela, get hit by a taxi and everybody just keep driving and going on their their day-to-day lives. It was really nuts, but high energy and really, really fantastic. Looking at the performances of that versus the performance is of Tokyo. Um, either both of them, you know, as a team, we didn't quite hit it out of the ballpark. What, why? you know, and you guys are used to peaking and doing some great stuff. What was the looking back? Um, I mean, we're looking back on Rio, as I said, like the,
1: when I look back on it, it does feel like we'd kind of already run our race in some ways. I think we'd had,
0: just because you were fatigued and like you. Yeah. I mean, I think
1: different people say different things. I I, I would, I would say I was more probably mentally fatigued than actually physically fatigued. It had been a long season. Maybe I was, 23 at the time so 24 so that might have been a factor versus the guys who were a bit older
0: but you look, uh, just to interrupt and i'm sorry Do you look back at what you guys had to go through like you know in, in 2013 a team that was starting to figure itself out mm-hmm. and then starting to perform you know as, as mike came in and that you know 2015 group but that that 2015 year you guys were playing sevens you were playing 15s a lot of the guys there was the motion about whether you're going to play in a 15s world cup oh by the way we had to qualify for the olympics That all happened in that summer leading up to it. And so it was kind of nonstop. There was no no break. So then all the way you're going to the next July, end of the next July. uh, It just seems like no matter how everybody tried to manage workloads from an emotional standpoint, I think is what you were hitting on.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, so it was, yeah, a big emotional uh, toll. And then obviously we had the whole season, which I, I think we had pretty much a whole team play every tournament that season. I'm sure there were a couple who missed a couple, but. And that was, I mean, we looked at different teams. So I, I, England had like half their team play, missed half the tournaments. And that was a really different angle. Some teams took and I think Fiji played the same team the whole time. So it worked out for them, but I think for us, and then we had a really intense Olympic camp, which I think was good in some ways. Like we got really fit, but at the same time we got to Rio and I think, yeah, a lot of guys were emotionally drained. And then, I mean, at the same time, I can look back on the games and Argentina, we lost last play of the game. Fiji, I think we lost by four points, which was closer closer than anyone else played that
0: that whole tournament. tournament,
1: And then we beat Brazil. So, like at the same time, like for all the things, I think we can look back on and say, "Oh, we didn't quite get this right. We didn't quite get that right." And and obviously, you need to do that when you're reviewing what you could have done better. If a ball goes one bounce, the ball goes differently against Argentina or against Fiji. Then we could be like looking back on that with a very different perspective and. And I think as you said earlier, that is the nature of sevens, is that you can't can't guarantee for everything. You just guarantee for as much as you possibly can. Um and I, I'm sure, and we have looked back on that and said we could have done a few things slightly better, but um yeah, it's very yeah, devastating, devastating losses there. And then as I look at Tokyo, I think again, like there there was a lot of emotional and mental fatigue. And and I think I'm sure every team went through that. It was a ridiculous it has been a ridiculous time in the world, but particularly that that year in the because the, the, we so we March 2020 we played in Vancouver. I think that we were supposed to have a week off after the tournament, and it was like, okay, I'll see you in a week. Um, and then we quickly got emails, okay, so hold off for another week, hold off for a month, hold off for a few months. We'll let you know when we should be back. And and that became we we came back at the beginning of September, and for the first month we were running in some random park, six feet apart in straight lines and not able to interact with each other because these were the rules that have been laid down. And uh, for me, actually, that was the hardest month of the pandemic because I got to a pretty good place. My girlfriend, and I went back to the East coast and we were with family um, for for the whole time we were apart and I got to a pretty good place. I, I had my gym figured out. I had my workouts figured out. I was surrounded by my family. I was in a good place. And then we came back and suddenly. I wasn't really able to interact with my teammates. It was still really uncertain on like one, trying to be like socializing particularly or anything like that. So I, I felt like I was just sitting in my room and then twice a week, I'd go out and run in straight lines, like saying, Hey Danny, how's it going? And like uh, from six feet to, to guys. And and I think that mental fatigue, that, that was the hardest part. But even once we got back into it, there were just constant challenges. And, and I think I, I struggled a bit to deal with that. Like we had in, in March when the reports came out saying the Olympics were canceled and that set the group chat off the light. And I remember, I think I just got home from practice and I was sitting in my car just been like, okay, (laughs) I don't know what to do with this information. I I, I, I didn't even read the article. I think it took me 30 minutes before I actually read the article. And I remember reading the article and then sending a thing in the group being like, hey guys, this doesn't say that at all. Like it's just a headline which said that. And then the actual body says like, one guy who was on some board associated with the Olympics says that it might be cancelled, um, and so then. But it, it was. I mean, it was just little moments like that that I think created this drain. And then I think anytime you're in such a tight environment like that, and I think the lack of competition stressed this. Personalities start to come, and and people have different viewpoints on what's the best way to proceed, and then you've got the different. People, the, the, all the players are like looking around like, Oh, what's going on here? What's going on there? And, and that really took a toll. Um, so I think all those different personalities and, and I, and I think the lack of competition was a big element of that because I mean, in sevens, we played 10 tournaments a year. You play, you have to get ready for the next week. You get constant barometers against all of your competition on how you're doing. And we were in this environment where we were pretty much going into the Olympics. Having not really played any of our competition in. What a year and a half at that point, and so having like we we'd had to get the test against GB in England and sorry GB in Ireland, um, but like I think we took half our team. Like I, I think they had more of their team. So, and and our starting group really hadn't played together since Vancouver in 2020. I'm not sure I right. played a 14 minute game since uh, since maybe even LA. I might have done it in Vancouver. I can't remember, and, and that was just a very long time before the Olympics, not to have those, um, tests against your competition and the game time with your team and and training can replicate that. And obviously if you've created a good training environment, it replicates it as closely as possible. Um, but I think the nature of rugby and the nature of sevens is that you can't really get those real acute, real exact tests of what a game is like, unless you're playing games.
0: Um, Massive challenge for a coach, you know, is that is creating a competitive environment but getting consistency which aren't necessarily sometimes mutually exclusive but also when you have a a tier an elite tier of players who have the most experience and you want to make sure that they're healthy going into the peak events but making sure that they get the competitive reps they need that's a really really hard formula to get right and yeah yeah and i'm not sure there is a right yeah
1: no definitely i mean i think you look at someone like. Danny Barrett who like is known for just trampling opponents on the field and he doesn't really do that to us in training so like even even when like you're like okay Danny we need to really go today in training he's like okay I'm gonna really go and he I think he goes with like 95% at that point but he's he's not doing what he does to some opponents and I mean I think everyone needs that and and I other teams obviously were able to able to deal with it and able to succeed anyway um, but I think that was a challenge that we had to work through and weren't quite able to get that right. Um, but yeah, did as well as we could.
0: Okay. So what's, what's the future now? So, um, our, our good folks know that Maddie's taken a step away from, from sevens for a bit, uh, what is, what does that mean for you right now?
1: So, I mean, I, i had shoulder surgery in the fall. So that was, that's been a, a big thing. I've been doing a lot of shoulder rehab, which has been lots of fun, um, well, on my back, yeah, doing this.
0: Can you do that with an IPA in your hand? <laughs>
1: i mean that's, i'm not allowed to yet max but, but uh, free jacks ipa uh, give it a, give it a couple here, of weeks really. and i'll get free free jacks ipa for some external <laughs> yeah. rotations but uh, so yeah it's it's a long process and i, I think that's been on top of what other things which i'll get into it's been dealing with that has has added to it um so then i'm trying to figure it out i mean i think i knew in the run-up to the olympics that it was going to be a good time for me to to step away and take a break and i think as the games got closer and then reviewing it. It was even clearer to me that that was not only good for myself, but probably good for the team as well. And that other people needed the opportunity to step into that gap and to take the team forward in their own way. I think I'd done that for so long and not the team was a mirror of me, but I, I think it had been made behind me the whole time. And I think it needed a, an opportunity for fresh perspectives and fresh voices to to rise up. And I think that was in the best interest of the team um for me I, I think i saw it as kind of in the back of my head i've got it as Ooh, one more olympics i'll be 31 i could i could give that another go and and then we were having a conversation but it's like there will probably always be some unfinished business from your rugby career but I definitely feel like I, I have some unfinished business there. So I I am not I I yeah, I think I refuse to call it a retirement. I think sabbatical is the term that I've been going with. <laughs> um I don't know if people take rugby sabbaticals. I'm not sure that's really a thing, but I'll, I'll make it a thing. So um I look at it as kind of a got about a two-year window um to try something else. And I think it's always been very important to me going back to I mean, my my mom instilled this in me growing up that you always gotta have a plan B because like professional sports which was my dream from the age of like two years old isn't the isn't the most sure thing so um and going back to it's
0: tour isn't working out so well.
1: exactly <laughs> i mean going down with a big part of that was that like in england if you play professional rugby you're pretty much supposed to do that out of school and maybe you get a degree but it's not from a particularly good university and it's in most cases uh and rugby is your sole focus and i knew that Pursuing a good degree was as important to me as pursuing my rugby career, and I wanted to do both of those. So that was a big reason why I went to Dartmouth. And and now, as I I, I don't want rugby to be the sum of everything I ever do, um, and I, I would rugby playing, I guess. Um, and I I wanted to expose myself to something a new challenge and test myself in a really different way. Um, and so yeah, I've been talking to different people. Um about, yeah, different roles at some startups. So we'll see, looking at some business development roles. Um,
0: Intriguing, tell us more.
1: Yeah, so um, I think, yeah, it's it's a very big change from what I've been doing, but I, I, I liked the idea and I think this is a big part of what I enjoyed about my rugby experiences was kind of trying to assess what's going on and figure out what's the problem we're trying to solve and how are we gonna move forward and working in that team environment, trying to optimize team performance. I think these are all things that I really enjoyed. So. As I look at, um, kind of some more business oriented challenges, that's something that appeals to me. And I, think I, I I kind of started one of my internal thinking um, with like maybe consulting is something that would appeal to me, like looking at, okay, we're going to go into this business, assess what their issue is, what their market is, what their product is, what the market product fit is, uh, and try and figure out their solution. Um, and, and so I've been looking kind of some different roles there, talking to some, some folks in some startups. Um, about kind of yeah, internal consulting, business development, strategy sort of roles, operations,
0: all, all in that. Just sort throw of that. A strategy, innovation, just, just throw <laughs> those in there and you'll be sweet.
1: I got some keywords. I was throwing some keywords at you. <laughs> uh, but no. So yeah, so I'm I'm I think yeah, between shoulder surgery and some other stuff, I haven't haven't started anywhere yet, but uh looking into some roles and we'll be looking to get into that. And I think who knows? I mean, a little bit of my dream scenario almost is that I go somewhere try it out find a lot of fulfillment in it enjoy it and think you know what I'm just gonna have a great run I love my you rugby great run. but I'm re- but I'm ready to move on um but in the back of my head I've got it that 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 next Olympics um so we'll see what happens I, I I'd be I think I I will play rugby again I don't know when and I don't know exactly where but uh I I'm I'm, in, I'm enjoying taking a step back and I missed the game this morning it was a bit early for me on the west coast but i'll i watch that later on I'll, I'll watch their their other games and i'm i'm in touch with the guys a lot so that's been a lot of fun to okay. see see like so cable Williams who's a guy who i've always really really believed in and, and believed that he could both perform to that level but i think it was also the way he was such a good squad person for bringing everyone together and it was really great to see him in these last few tournaments really step up into that captain's role and, and fill that so well and play so well on the pitch and then you are Stephen Thomasine, who's a guy who I played uh, college All-Americans with. And we had a, a great college All-Americans team where I think five or six of us immediately got called up to the National Sevens camp. Um, and then he had some injury shit troubles, came back so strongly uh, in that kind of 2017, 2018 period. Uh, and it's been really good to see him step up because I think he's always he's he's had that on-field performance down for a number of years now, but getting that off-field balance between bringing his personality so strongly, but also. That could sometimes be a negative thing. And and I think getting him to realize when he needed to do certain things for the benefit of the team and when he needed to do certain things for the benefit of himself. And I think striking that balance has been something that he's really worked on over the years and it's been fantastic to see his growth in that element. So it's been a lot of fun seeing different guys step up and, and seeing new guys come into the team. And I I've enjoyed that.
0: I don't know if it still happens with you. I, I love watching that team play and it's every time i do i still get a pit in my stomach like i still get super super anxious and nervous and just but so excited to watch when when you guys are like flying and doing your great stuff it's a, it's a it's a magic team to watch you're going through you know what the the classic late 20s conundrum that so many go through it's like you know what's the grass is greener over here i got buddies that i grew up with doing this and that who am i where am i going which it's a massive weight, actually, and um, really good on you for taking time to kind of digest it and not rush and force something, which is brilliant and quite actually mature of you. So, Matty, just, you know, professionalization of the game in North America, it's coming in all these different layers, iterations, you know, as a sabbatical player here, what are your thoughts? Yeah. So, I mean,
1: when I was in college, coming out of college, MLO didn't exist. So if you wanted to be a professional rugby player, you either had the USA sevens team, or trying to find a contract in Europe. And I I think that was something that early in my college career, I was kind of going back and forth. Like, do I want to go back to England and and try and find something there? Do I want to play sevens? And and I think sevens became my big focus, but if MLR existed, who knows what would have happened? I think I've really enjoyed and loved my sevens experiences. So I, I, and obviously the Olympics is an enormous pinnacle to shoot for. So I think it is still a very appealing option. Um, but it's fantastic that there are so many more opportunities for professional rugby players domestically, and I, I think that's been great to see from afar. And obviously, we've had a lot of guys with the sevens team who've been involved with the San Diego Legion, and then I've had some conversations with you about what you're doing at the Free Jack. So I don't have that intimate view into everything that's going on from having experienced it, but from from the outside, I mean, it's so good to see, and I think it will do massive things especially for the 15s team. I think the 7s team will be interesting to see how that balance sits with young players and, and with guys on on how they want to drive forward because obviously at the moment, at least, the talent pool for American rugby players isn't hugely deep. Um, so if there's massive competition for players and, and suddenly no one wants to go to Chula Vista and play 7s or or no one can be involved with Chula Vista because they're all involved with the MLR, that could hurt r sevens team in the short run. I think in the long run, this is going to massively deepen the U S talent pool. So I I think over time, I think probably that balance will be easier to strike, but in the, in the short run, there could be some competition. And then for PR sevens, I mean, it's good friend of mine, Owen Scannell, who, who started that. So that was really fun to be involved with and to have some conversations with him over how he wants to sit in the landscape. And then I was there commentating, which was a lot of fun and that's been yeah, you're actually like-
0: really good at it by the way you're, that's Thank like, you that's like I'd be you know if, if there's professionalism in that in the future I, I enjoy your commentating so oh, I appreciate
1: that-, that no I enjoy it. I mean I think I approached it in the beginning as like we so we had a number of years with the 17 team where we'd do multi-hour film sessions breaking down every single element of practice and we'd have different people sit at the front of the room and say okay like this is what's happening and talk it through and I kind of try and bring that analysis and breakdown where like, what would I be saying to my teammates about what we did well or what we didn't do well or what enabled this to happen because that happened. Uh, and that's the kind of breakdown that I try and bring. I think I, I leave the colorful puns and stuff to down and, and he can bring that part, but yeah, like <laughs> he is, I mean, he makes it so entertaining and I, and I think that's the balance of strike. I'm not trying to be very procedural and like this, it's trying to make it fun and, and make the sport of rugby fun, but also analyze why why teams are having success and why things are going well. So, no, I definitely enjoyed the commentating and it was really fun to see the first PR sevens and hopefully they're able to go on because I think having professional sevens will be a big thing for, for sevens. And it's been a really hard challenge, not for people, just not just for people in the US, but for people all over the world, because obviously you have a 15s match, two teams come in, they play, they, they all come from the same place. They play their game. They're going to play in the same stadium in front of the same fans for the whole season sevens you bring in a whole bunch of different teams which is a much bigger cost from different places so it's much harder logistically and then you might have one event a season in that place So how do you get the fans to buy into having that and i, I think that's been the challenge and I, i'm optimistic about the work pr sevens is doing i think they're looking at it in a really cool way so hopefully they're able to continue and the plans are to have a more extensive season this year but i think between yeah between mlr and the growth of mlr has been great to see and then pr sevens fitting in. It, it, it's a cool time and I think it's going to do a lot of good things um, for the American rugby player talent pool, but also how many fans are engaged with it. Because this is, yeah, stepping back with the sevens team, I think one of the things that we really noticed is we'd have one tournament a year in the US, you'd have a great touch point with fans. They'd be so engaged. They'd be so excited about it, but then you wouldn't have, you wouldn't replicate that. Yeah, you um, have to
0: get up at three in the morning to watch you play. Yeah, there's it's a momentum.
1: And, and, and in the MLR, like being able to embed yourselves in all these different communities and have those frequent touch points with the same fans and they know where the games are going to be. They know when they're going to be. Um, and, and, I, and I think that's a fantastic thing for the growth of rugby. Um, I, I still do think that sevens is the easier grabbing tool for people. I, I think if you're watching 15s and you don't really know what's going on, you're just like, why do they just keep all running into each other? Why do they keep just piling in? And, and it's harder to have those conversations where in sevens, you kind of just sit back and like, wow, this is really cool. Like, even if you have no idea what's actually happening. And, and I've rarely had a conversation with a first time sevens watcher who hasn't been incredibly enamored by the experience, but then how do you grab that attention? How do you keep that attention when team isn't going to play again in front of them for a very long time? Whereas I think if we can grab them with sevens and then feed them to 15s to continue that journey, I think that's a really effective and, and is going to be the, the way to continue to capture attention for rugby.
0: Yeah, so what I'm hearing you say is with all of these new professionalization of the game opportunities, they're not mutually exclusive right now. And it's actually about net new fans and opportunities for players and massive opportunities increasing. And, and we just see that now. I mean, Javon Camp's with, um, with us at the Free Jacks crossover athlete and elite athlete in another sport. Um, now there's more opportunities for that to happen. Uh, in sevens, we see a bunch of the players who've transitioned from you know some of the work that, that Glendale has done, but through the PR sevens and um, those opportunities. If if these professional competitions are sustainable and it looks like MLR has kind of gotten through that major first big hump of the first few years that typically break um, professional organizations, if the others can continue to, to grow and sustain, it's, it, it it bodes very well for for the game in the United States and North America. Matty, uh, rapid fire. Um, if you weren't a rugby player and you could choose anything in the world to do, what would you be doing? Um,
1: I mean, the easy answer is soccer player, but that, that's a bit of a cop-out. So uh, I'd like to think I could a number. who really knows? But uh, I mean, I think probably it'd be something similar to what I'm hopefully going to be doing soon in the, in the business world. I think like, yeah. Strategy. I'm so intrigued by
0: this, and I, you, you're 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 not telling me, which is, is is cool too. But someday, I'm really excited to find out what you're thinking.
1: Yeah, no, we'll see. I, I think um, I like. I yeah, I like the kind of operation strategy problems that kind of businesses face. So trying to figure that out, um, I think, in some sort of capacity would be would be what I solving think. puzzles. How cool is that? Exactly. And then being able to actually do it and execute it, it's its so if fun. It and see the results and then like iterate on that and figure out what went wrong, what went right. Like, I think those are the sort of problems that I enjoy and I enjoy working through. And, and so that's yeah, where I see it going.
0: Favorite uh, seven series tour stop?
1: Ooh, Again, cop out. But um, London, because I went there growing up. Vegas, because the home fans. Um, Hong Kong, because it's Hong Kong. It's awesome. And for, for the non those category, Cape Town was always really fun.
0: Yeah, great, great. Um, favorite, uh, most memorable Olympic Village moment. Ooh. Uh,
1: so we were sitting down in the the cafeteria, the our team, and a lady sits down next to our team, turns to one of our people and goes, "Hi, I'm Venus. What's your name?" <laughs> we're like, "Whoa!" And she's like, "Oh, this is my sister Serena." Like. <laughs> We know exactly who you rules, yeah. so uh, that was that was really wonderful. How and
0: amazing is that?
1: Yeah, no, it was it was absolutely fantastic. And I mean, fair credit to her. I mean, they're the Williams sisters, yeah. and and to to think that they needed to, and and actually they were, it was really cool. Like so, in the cafeteria, it's kind of a free for all, and yeah, they just sat down next to our team and and just started talking to us, which was which was really surreal and very cool.
0: That's great. What are you thinking when you're kicking all those kicks? I've seen you do it under pressure to win a game, whether it's Dartmouth beating Kutsan in the CRCs, beating New Zealand and Dubai sevens from the corner, what's going on?
1: So for me, I mean, the biggest thing is really not trying to think. I think I've practiced these kicks so, so many times that I use kind of use my breathing. So I look down, like take a deep breath look up at the post, take another deep breath, look down, take another deep breath of the ball and then kind of go through my motion. And and that's kind of an act of me trying to clear my head and I'm not trying to think, okay, if I push the ball out with my hand or if I drop it straight, like I'm just like, okay, I just wanted to let it happen. And I think that's been especially helpful when, I mean, in the 14th minute of a game, when you're absolutely exhausted, you've just run 40 meters to to both score and then come back to take the kick. just trying to get everything out of my head and let the kind of the muscle memory of all the practice I'm doing. Uh, so
0: it's through. not a nursery rhyme and it's not like thinking the crowd is all naked or something. No,
1: I mean, <laughs> I, 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 the, the only thing like I, I,
0: I, and again, I try and let,
1: break it out when I'm, uh, when I'm actually kicking, but I, I always did enjoy when you'd be in New Zealand and some fan will be there swearing at you and, and telling you how you're going to miss the kick and you just make the kick and then give them a little wink and a smile as you run away.
0: That's. I'm doing this so I can wink and smile. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, if you're running the Free Jacks, to bring it back full circle, if you're running the Free Jacks today. You're in my position. What are your biggest focuses?
1: Um, so, I mean, I think it's a lot of the work that you're doing already, but I, I think for me, like embedding the team in the community would be really what I would focus on. I, I think, like, I have my brother plays touch rugby in the Boston area. My parents are Free Jacks season ticket holders, so I like I've got people who are who are Kind of involved in that. But I I think you want the community to really identify with the team. And and that's both kind of the the rugby community, because, and I think you've done a really good job of this at the Free Jacks, but for some teams, uh, for some of these existing clubs, I'm sure there was some resentment and misunderstanding at the the beginning, which was like, how is this team who's supposed to sit above us going to come in? Are they just going to steal all our players? Are they going to work with us? And I think the way that the Free Jacks in particular, but I think a number of the MLR clubs have worked with the local clubs to set themselves up within the fabric of the local rugby community, the touch rugby community and, and getting that all involved. And then you want people in the Boston area, the New England area to really identify with the free Jacks. And I think that the more you can embed yourself within that community and be, have it be something that, I mean, kids grow up wanting to be free Jacks and and, and uh, all these different, folks, and all the, exactly. And all these folks within the rugby community and within the community at large, identify with the team and think, oh, we want this team to be successful. We want to support the team. We want to give our money to the team uh, and some places to for tickets. Cause I mean, there's a lot of competition, particularly in the Boston area for spending your Saturday at sporting events. Like there's a lot of places you can do that. And, and I think the different teams are so identifiable with the community that uh, the more the free Jacks are able to get into that landscape and, and be in that consciousness of everyone involved. Um, the better you're going to do.
0: Well said. This is almost like your SAT. You're almost to a perfect score. One last question. Who's going to win 2022 Major League Rugby Championship?
1: Oh, I mean, I, I'm already wrapping here, Mags. I think <laughs> it calls <caused> the, <laughs> <it caused> the <laughs> start.
0: In red, white, and blue.
1: There we go. Yeah, they, oh, it calls the star. I walked into the gym one day wearing this hoodie, and everyone was like, ah, what's going on here? So, nah, <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm free jacks all the way. Um, yeah, you right here I,
0: first, folks. There right, you go. <laughs> Maddie, so good to catch up. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. No, I
1: really appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. That's
0: great. Thanks for tuning in to the latest episode of Full Contact CEO, Maddie. How do they find you on social media?
1: Um, so Instagram, Madison Hughes ten. Uh, Twitter, Madison Hughes fifteen. Was my so confusing? I, I made Twitter <laughs> when I was like, like, on like, averages <laughs> and be like
0: Madison Hughes twelve
1: point <laughs> <laughs> so, five. I made the Twitter when I was like more 15s. and I made the Instagram yeah. when I was at the sevens. And then there is a Madison Hughes 10 on Twitter and I messaged them at one point. And, and I think they, all their tweets are like at Isles. this is not the rugby player. Do not tweet at me. Uh, (laughs) So I think they deactivate their account and I haven't been able to get them to give control. And I I gave up on that a few years ago, but yes, confusing at different times for different people.
0: Be sure to subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcast, a full contact CEO, and be sure to follow Madison as he continues to take on the world. Maddie, so good. Be well. Thanks, man. You too.